Hi, Nancy. Welcome to episode 64 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. So grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. Lenny, today we interview Julie Desjardins about the world of professional women in the mid-20th century. And I'm so excited about this interview. Julie is a historian of American women and gender who has taught and written extensively in the field, particularly on the history of women in professions. Along with pieces on gender and women's history for blogs, journals, and Oxford's history of history writing, she has written several books, including Women and the Historical Enterprise in America, The Madame Curie Complex, and Lillian Gilbreth, and an interesting study of American masculinity on Walter Camp. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot, Nancy. Julie's the perfect expert for us to talk to about the time period of our October book, which is Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. This book is set in the mid-20th century with the brilliant chemist Elizabeth Sott as our protagonist. So we wanted to learn more about the women in the mid-century and their professional work world that Elizabeth finds herself in. And boy, did we, because I think listeners are really going to like that her experience seems to be what was going on a lot for women in the STEM fields. It almost made me think that maybe Bonnie, the author, he knew what she was talking about. And, it, <laughs> and she had done her research on people that were actually in the STEM fields doing this kind of work, some of them being Nobel Prize winners who experienced so many barriers and obstacles. And Julie brings all of this to light and it really sheds a new, for me, respect for the author and what this poor woman is facing. Yeah, it's great. All right, let's get to it. All right. Welcome, Julie, to the front porch. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so delighted to have you and your knowledge about women and the workforce at the time that this novel is written. So before we jump in, we'd just like to learn a little bit about your research and your writings about American women in the professional workforce. Sure. I have tackled these questions from a couple different angles. My training is as a cultural historian. I was actually a history professor for 20 years, and I focused on women and gender in American culture in general, but probably in the workplace in particular. I've written about women in STEM fields, women in academia, women in gender in athletics, in politics, so lots of different areas and different workplaces, but largely in the 20th century for the most part. I know a lot about what women were doing and what they were doing without being seen in terms of work in the period that the book takes place in. As much as I write about those things, now what I'm doing is I'm working on getting more women in STEM in the workplace. I actually am a director of diversity and culture of inclusion at what's called the Center for Quantum Networks, which is at the University of Arizona. It probably isn't a shock to you that in quantum, 
women are woefully underrepresented, but so are other groups. And so I'm trying to keep those pipelines open. Now, that's very interesting to me because (laughs) women bring value and their diversity to the workplace. So how do you sell the importance of specifically having women or maybe minority groups that are underrepresented in those groups to show that there's value in diversity? Where to begin? So particularly of all the different professional areas that I've studied, STEM is its own beast because the problem in STEM is that people are trained to believe that, okay, what I'm doing is this very empirically driven enterprise. It's data-driven. There's no bias here because it's all about the data, right? And so the first thing is convincing people or making them understand that the culture of STEM is like any other culture. Plenty of bias, and it can go along gender lines or racial lines or whatever. But then (laughs) once you do that, then you have to make the case to show how the science will actually be better if you take this multiplicity of perspectives into account. I was actually a consultant in Silicon Valley prior to coming to the University of Arizona, and I would talk to these tech companies, and you know they would design some high-tech thing, and it would be a group of more times than not white men who designed these things, and then they would unleash that product on, you know out into the world, and there was always an angle they missed, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was the same kind of people designing for the same kind of people. And I thought, you know, you want your customer base to be broad. You want all sorts of people to use this. Well, it means that you also have to have a bunch of people that are there designing that product. That's not just the same kind of person. In science, there's no doubt. I think people think because, again, it's this empirical enterprise that there's only one way to do science. Sure, there's scientific method, but the questions you ask of the science completely depend on where you've been, what your experiences are, right? And I also find, at least I'm finding this at the Center for Quantum Networks, that a lot of the women that work here have been socialized to have a set of soft skills that are so desperately needed for the kinds of collaborations we're trying to achieve. Yes. It's not that men couldn't have those skills or don't have those skills. It's it's literally been how women have been socialized, even the way that they talk to each other in group settings. You know, Deborah Tannen writes a lot about this. Yeah. These are the soft skills that actually grease the machine and make it work well. I can see it day in and day out that the women are the ones that are like the integrators on the team. They're the ones that sense when something's not going right for somebody, <laughs> And brings them in. It's actually what's preventing us from doing all of this great science in silos. Mm -hmm. Women are the ones that are actually asking the questions that are making the different groups talk to each other. I'm not saying that it's only women that can do that. It's really a skill that I don't think we pay enough attention to in science. Those skills that actually help us collaborate. There's this mythology around it that it's like this single genius hunkered down, like he's a universe unto himself, and he comes up with all these brilliant insights. That's not how science happens, right? It's a bunch of people actually bouncing ideas off each other and having those conversations. So it's a very social enterprise that requires social skills and soft skills, right? 
And, and that's something that I'm trying to make very clear. But actually, I don't have to make a very strong case because the moment that we start to have these group interactions, I think people can see what a lot of the women are bringing to the table, let alone their tech ability. Well, I'm glad you're not getting much pushback on it. So the people that you're talking to are pretty receptive then and see that there is value in having a more diverse workforce. Lenny, let me be really, really clear. It's a hard sell. I think everybody has the right intentions, but there's definitely in STEM as in other fields, I'm not just going to say STEM, but, but particularly in STEM, there's this sense that what we do is devoid of bias. Just the, the nature of what we do doesn't have bias. It's empirical, it's data, it's right, it's wrong, it's yes or no. And it does take having some conversations and sort of really, I think, convincing scientists that there is a culture to what they do. I think they think that there's not a culture to science. And that has been an education, but they're, they're at least open to the conversations. I definitely have found there's generational facets to this. Some of the younger scientists that are part of the center get it and understand it. <laughs> Some of the older ones that have been around a while, and this is how they were trained. And so it's very hard for them. And especially I find some of the older women who have succeeded in science They're like, what are you complaining about? What are you whining about? I think they feel like, okay, well, we were hazed. We've had to master this game and now you're changing the game. Mm -hmm. That has been an interesting conversation to different generations of women scientists. But even at that, I have to tell you that American women have a very different relationship to science than say many of the Indian women that I work with. What I have found is that science really got its sort of prestige as it was getting professionalized in the United States by being defined as everything antithetical to domesticity. Mm. And so there's these associations here. I work with Indian women that were trained in India, and some of them are even in very traditional marriages, you know, arranged marriages and have very traditional families. But that same association of domesticity and science that was not made for them in the same way. They're very much encouraged to do these culturally masculine areas of science, the hard physical sciences. And it's not a challenge to their femininity in any way, in the same way it is for American women. You have to account for where these women were trained, what's their race, what's their ethnicity, their neurodivergence, their body types. I mean, there's so many different ways that they're experiencing science differently. And that's been a real challenge and trying to sort of educate and have conversations around that in a place where they think that that's a distraction from the science has been a real challenge. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is. So you started out as a historian. I want to tap a little bit into that area of expertise of yours. So women were very active in the workforce during World War II to support the war effort and step into jobs that were vacated when so many men went off to war. Can you tell us about the seismic change that happened in the mid-20th century when those men returned home and how that did create a very different culture for women, especially in the professional workforce. 
Yeah, I mean, there was definitely this Thermidorian reaction. But what's interesting about World War II, and and I think a lot of people are familiar with the Rosie the Riveter image. Please know, and, and this is, I think, the thing that people don't realize. It wasn't that suddenly women were allowed to go into the public workspace during World War II. There were actually a lot of women during the Depression, by necessity, had to go into the workforce but it it tended not to be white, middle-class women. Black women didn't have the luxury, more times than not, to not work for a wage outside the home. And then during the Depression, by necessity, maybe, maybe the ideal was to not have to work outside the home, but many women had to. Many families, literally the primary breadwinner, if he was male, oftentimes they abandoned their families and many women had to work for a wage suddenly. So it wasn't that there was a a humongous shift that didn't happen already. The shift was in white married women mm-hmm. at World War II, where suddenly they were actually told it's okay, and in fact, patriotic to go and work for a wage outside the home on the condition that you, you go back home after the war you know, when we no longer need you. But what was interesting, there was actually a Gallup poll right after the war, I think in like 1946, 75% of those women who left home to go work for a wage would have stayed there if they could have Mm -hmm. wanted to. And so that was like the sea change. You know, it's like they got a taste of it and liked it and they liked the economic autonomy of it. And so even when we get to the 1950s and there's this return to the sort of June Cleaver stereotype of you're supposed to stay home and take care of your children and you do everything at home and you buy the Betty Crocker cookbooks and you become great at cooking and cleaning and taking care of all of that. Even so, there had been sort of a psychological dam that had been broken. And there were plenty of women who were still working. And in fact, many of them didn't go back. But but that's not what you hear in the popular culture. Mm. As a cultural historian, I can tell you that a lot of times that prominent idea of the woman who stayed home in the 50s, it was so pervasive. You saw it in TV and you saw it on billboards. I promise you those cultural messages wouldn't have been so loud and resounding if there wasn't something else going on underneath it. Yeah. So what was going on underneath it was there were a lot of women who were primary breadwinners anyway, were working for a wage anyway, really liked being in the workforce. And even if they went back, were thinking, I'm not happy with this. So as cultural historians, one of the things we've noticed is like what you see in the media, that's not necessarily a reflection of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's a lot of like, well, let's convince people that's what's going on. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique that comes Mm -hmm. out in 1963, where she really puts her finger on all of that discontent, where actually there's a lot of women who are very dissatisfied just being at home. So that foment, that was there in the 50s. It's being covered up by all of those different popular images, I think. And also, I think the reality that women were said, okay, you need to go back home. That's your place because these jobs are needed by our soldiers who are returning home. And now it's unpatriotic to stay in the workforce. Now you need to go back home, open up those jobs for our boys. 
You know, isn't that amazing how both of them use this sort of patriotic discourse, right? (laughs) You're a good patriot if you if you do this for your country. And now you're a good patriot if you get out of here for your country. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And for the most part, white middle class women returned home again, the same women who had been working the whole way through be out of necessity. They continued to work in the 1950s. That domestic ideal was just not a possibility for so many women. Mm-hmm. And then you have those that took on white collar or intellectual work, women who became scientists during World War II as men vacated the labs. It was very difficult to tell those women, okay, we don't need your intellectual work anymore. And so there's all of these different segments of women who were doing different things than what the billboard said women were doing. This is a good place to talk about lessons in chemistry. Our protagonist, Elizabeth Zott, faces many challenges as she attempts to build a career as a chemist. She isn't accepted into a PhD program because she defends herself when she is raped by her supervisor. Upon getting her master's degree, she receives only one offer at a job that is way less money than men in that position. She's given insignificant work assignments. When she does great work, others take credit for her ideas and steal her work. She's ultimately fired for getting pregnant. How do these situations actually reflect what was really going on for women, specifically in STEM areas in, in professional work at that time? Where to begin? It sounds implausible that all of that happened to one person, but I can tell you my book, The Madame Curie Complex, those multiple things happened to Nobel Prize winners. Yeah. And if it could happen to Nobel Prize winners who clearly had the visibility to get acknowledged and win a Nobel Prize, one of the women that I write about, also very, very prominent in the 50s, but she did amazing work in the 40s, Maria Geppert Mayer, for the shell orbit theory of the nucleus. She ends up winning a Nobel Prize. It takes a few decades for her to finally fully get credit for that, but she did that in the late 40s and in the 50s. And then she wins a Nobel Prize. And then in 1972, UCSD decides, you know what? We should probably pay her for being a professor. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's a Wait, terrible. She, hadn't, she hadn't been paid? No. Oh, she was a, a quote unquote volunteer professor. Oh, my goodness. And one of the reasons why these kinds of practices didn't get acknowledged was she had a husband who was a very prominent scientist. And so it was one of those things where he got a job and then she came over with him. She just happened to be a Nobel Prize winning researcher while she went there. But this happened a lot. And the nepotism policies in science were so extreme. The idea was, okay, we we hire the husband, and of course the woman's going to eventually not be available to do research, so we'll let her work here as a a volunteer professor, because she's probably going to have her children and then be no longer available. And the amazing thing is she did have two children, but she never stopped working as a professor during all of that. So there you go. Those stories this woman was experiencing in the book, I saw that in all of the research. Researchers at Los Alamos, 
what was fascinating about them is they were doing the research to produce the atom bomb and they don't write about it or talk about it, but they, they actually would write about the men they were in proximity to. It's like they almost perpetuated their own invisibility because they knew that they weren't really appropriate in that space. I have seen this with so many women who do these amazing things in public and professional space in this period is they know that they're probably not supposed to be there. And so the way that they play it is to do all of this stuff in stealth, to do this stuff, but don't talk about it out loud because someone will notice that they're doing these things where they can be seen and they can be rewarded and acknowledged. And so what I found fascinating is some of my best sort of informants on what was going on at Los Alamos were these women scientists, but they don't write about themselves. Hmm. They write about the famous men they were in proximity to. Was Lisa Meitner one of the women that you studied? Yeah, you know, she wasn't at Los Alamos, but certainly she was such a prominent scientist and mathematician in Europe. And many of the women that I write about were, I think, very influenced by her, but so much of what she did was sort of in stealth, yeah, you know, and not to be acknowledged openly or outwardly. Mm-hmm. In the case of Maria Gebert Mayer, the reason why she eventually wins a Nobel Prize is because very luckily for her, she had very prominent scientist male friends and a husband in these high places who made sure that she got acknowledged. And one of the major players of that was Enrico Fermi. He made sure she got seen and in her own right. And I talk about that a little bit in the book, the politics of visibility for women in this period. Many of them were married to very prominent scientists if they were successful scientists themselves. But there was this real song and dance of like, how do I get seen on my own merits and not get overshadowed by my husband? And it was a very delicate balance. And and one of the people I write about that really had to be careful that way was Mary Curie. Yeah. She had a husband who very, very fortunately wanted her to get seen. And so when he gets nominated for his first Nobel Prize, he tells the Nobel Committee, actually, the lead researcher on this was my wife. They gave it to her grudgingly. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And... She splits it with two men, her husband and another researcher named Henry Becquerel. But if you ever read the speech at the Nobel ceremony, they refer to her the entire time, not as the primary researcher, but as her husband's helpmeet. Wow. The the lab assistant. Wow. That's literally how she gets acknowledged throughout that speech. That's a real life connection then to the book where Elizabeth does not want to get married to the Nobel Prize winning scientist who has uh, fallen in love with her and she's fallen in love with him because she's afraid she's going to be overshadowed. That if she is his wife, she will always be thought of as just an appendage or as someone who has benefited from his fame and is not worthy of fame herself. Plus she'll lose her name. I'm not a scientist, but I can tell you as a as a historian who published and wrote books, that was a, a huge decision in keeping my name as well. Mm-hmm. I completely understand that. And I have to say, the way that I sort of write about the, the marriage question, 
for, for women to succeed in science, historically speaking, it's been very important that if they get married, they have a husband who understands the visibility game. And one of the things that Madame Curie's husband, Pierre, he very consciously made sure that when she published separately and on her own, that that, that gets seen. And he encouraged her to publish on her own. And she had no problem publishing on her own. Yeah. But he very much understood that as a strategy. It's such a hard thing because in some ways they give you proximity to important people in important places, potentially. The reason why she was able to lecture at the Sorbonne was because she was married to Pierre Curie. The problem is once you get in that space, you do have to create some separation. So what she says in the book, where she's like, I don't want to marry this person that's got this huge reputation, it makes a lot of sense. Mm. I've written about that with a lot of the married couples that I write about in the Madame Curie complex. It's a very delicate balance. Taking advantage of their proximity to important people and places, but yet also carving out your own space. So the Madame Curie complex, you talk about scientists such as Jane Goodall, Rosalind Franklin, who is a chemist. She anticipated the discovery of a DNA structure. Rosalind Yalow, of course, Marie Curie. What has been their contribution to women entering the sciences in subsequent generations? Did their silence, did their kind of strategizing end up making it at least as difficult for women in subsequent generations? Or did that in some way really pave the way for women in science in the future? Yeah, you know, each one of the women that you've mentioned, Nancy, I use their stories to talk about very different dynamics over time. And so, like, for example, you mentioned Rosalind Yalo, who ends up winning a Nobel Prize. The way that she played it, she was somebody who did her doctorate work during World War II, and she was able to get access to graduate school when men left for war. Mm -hmm. She was a, a brilliant scientist and in her own right. But what she realized in the 50s was that she was going to have to play this game of, I can't let them see my domesticity. And this was at the time where there was this whole sort of, you've got to put in your 80 to 100 hours in the lab every week. And of course, this was right when her biological clock was ticking. Yeah. And this is typically what happens. You're supposed to put in those hours in the lab in your 20s and 30s, which is, of course, right around the time that women would be having children. And so she was having children. And this was a woman who worked her 80 to 100 hours a week in the lab and would literally leave in the middle of the night to go nurse a child and then come right back. Wow. Hoping no one would notice. And... When she gets her Nobel Prize in the 1970s, this is the rise of second wave feminism. And there's all of these feminist groups who want her to represent and they want her to talk to feminist groups. She wants nothing to do with it. She said, I, I didn't win the Nobel Prize because I'm a feminist. I just worked twice as hard. And I, I understand why she felt the need to have to make the case that way. But then you have someone like Jane Goodall in stark contrast I don't know that Jane Goodall was calling herself a feminist at the time either, but what she did was unwittingly redefined the rules of the game. 
Brazaniello just kept up that sort of masculine appearance. Mm-hmm. You have Jane Goodall, who literally redefined the field of primatology to make a feminine orientation a good thing in the field. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about them in very different ways. And I, I try not to make a judgment call because I understand why Rosalind Yellow felt the need to defend herself that way. And she eschewed feminism. She wanted nothing to do with the movement. Mm-hmm. Literally, as she was winning her Nobel Prize with the rise of second wave feminism, she wanted nothing to do with the movement. I could understand to some degree why she felt, especially in, in the very masculine field that she was in, she wanted to be seen as like, I played the game the same way the men played the game, and I was just really good at the game, as opposed to some of these other women that I talk about. And again, I don't think that they're they're doing it in the name of feminism, but like Rachel Carson, and I talk about even Diane Fossey, I even talk about Barbara McClintock. These were not feminists per se, but what they did was they proceeded to do science in ways that defied the the masculine myths, the definitions of what a scientist looks like and acts like. And so in some ways, what they did was they carved a space for themselves by redefining what science is. And so ultimately, I don't want to overstate this, but particularly in the United States, over the decades, it's become slightly more culturally feminine in that it's not taboo to, to say that, hey, I'm an advocate and a scientist. That would have been way too subjective of a statement to make in, in the staunchly masculine era of the 1940s and 50s. Now, scientists can do those things that are culturally feminine. They can have an advocate's point of view. They can have an activist's point of view. In some ways, even just our sensitivities to DEI in STEM fields now, asking questions about what that science does to female bodies or what that science does to bodies of color. And you and I know that that's not a gendered thing. But in in the culture, that's perceived as a feminine orientation to science. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming increasingly permissible. But again, the residues of that masculine ways of doing science are still very much there. Yeah. And I think even the way academia is structured as an institution, when you talk about, well, the expectation that it's in your 20s and your 30s, that you're in the research lab, those are the years also that you are working to get tenure as a professor. And those are the years that women may be having children. And so it is still a real balancing act to figure out how to become a tenured professor at a research institution and also be a spouse, a mom, and some of those other roles that women play. Even today in the, you know, the 21st century, there's been research. If you look at men who are in academic STEM fields and women who are in academic STEM fields, for sure, more women feel like the decision to do science or to have a family and children are like mutually exclusive. It's an either or proposition. Yeah much more so than men who don't feel like they have to make an either or. Mm-hmm. And that has everything to do with the culture of STEM still being staunchly masculine. What do you think, moving ahead, maybe 20 or 30 years, 
do you feel like the work that you're doing and other women are doing and more women getting into STEM, do you believe that there'll be significant change in that short of amount of time? You know, I think the key to significant change happening is for people to understand that the women in STEM problem is not a numbers problem. It's not like you just throw more women in the mix and stir and it's good, right? It's a cultural problem. And like, let's face it, that that is a much harder fix. You can throw a lot of women into the mix, but if you're not changing the culture, it makes no difference at all. There was a lot of research done in the 70s and 80s. There was actually a a study that said, if you could get like 15% in a lecture hall, female in a STEM class, that's going to start to change the culture. I don't know what the percentage is, to be honest with you. I think it's more than 15%, Mm -hmm. which is why it's not a numbers problem. It's about having conversations about how science got coded as hyper-masculine. My bottom line when I wrote the Madame Curie complex that I would explain to people is I went and looked at the history of all of these fields as they were getting professionalized to try to understand when all of this masculine meaning got put into all these science fields. People are like, well, but that's not the case today. People don't think that like women can't be good scientists today. The vast majority of people on the street, if you said, hey, like, can women be good at science? Vast majority of people will say, of course they can be. But the thing that they are still thinking in the back of their minds is they're thinking, yeah, women can be good at the science if they're emulating men when they do the science. And I don't know that people know that that's what they think, but that's the cultural problem. And that means that we literally have to infuse science with different meanings than are there. And it's hard when scientists don't have conversations about science as culture. So this is not going to happen in a day. But I do remind a lot of the scientists that I work with now, all of these things you think are like the default way. This is just how you do science. Who made that rule? Like, that actually is a construct. We decided that's how we're going to do science. We can do it differently, and it still will be good scientific method. And that's the conversation we need to be having, not just absolutely getting women into sciences, but once they're here, having those conversations about changing the meanings around science. This has been a very interesting conversation. I wish we could go on a little bit more about this, but I'm really interested in the National Women's History Museum. I live close to D.C. I go down to the Smithsonian's. I've seen a lot of them. Is this thing going to be built? Where is it going to be built? You're on the advisory council for it, right? To be really honest with you, on the advisory board, more of the conversations we're having is, well, if we're not going to have a brick and mortar what are we going to do to make women's and gender history more accessible through other means? Those are the conversations we're having because, you know, there was all of this excitement. Legislation got passed for this thing to become a thing. And then we stopped short of actually having an actual structure built. There's just not the, the political will to get that going again. And so the way that we have pivoted is we're like, well, we still want to have a museum of women's history in this country. So if this has to be virtual, if this has to be in other mediums, we have to do it. Okay. So that's kind of where we are right now. And I'm sad that the political will to get the actual building built went to the wayside. But yeah, it has definitely been sidetracked for sure. 
So we're trying to proceed anyway. Okay. I thought the money was up front and this thing was going to happen. The money that was given has been used for us to be able to create basically a virtual museum. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. There's a legitimacy that comes with having an actual brick and mortar museum. And that's very important to us. But it's going to take a Congress that wants to make that a priority. In the meantime, what are some of the activities that the museum is involved in? There's a virtual center, like I was saying, but as somebody that's on the advisory board, we're a little bit of a clearinghouse of information. So let's just say it's Women's History Month and somebody in X, Y, and Z industry would love to have somebody talk about women in that industry. They can basically write to the National Women's History Museum and say, do you have any good speakers? I speak, I do it for free because I'm on the advisory board. But basically what we do is we provide those resources for folks, whether it's me speaking or somebody else speaking, or even just giving them lists of bibliographies or websites or whatever. And so we're definitely trying to still be informative and trying to spread the history as much as we can without an actual museum. Did I see that there are also some in-person events that are happening around D.C. and also virtual exhibits on the website? There are. It's been really interesting because most of us on the advisory board are, of course, professional historians. But what we really needed are people who are actually professionals in these other medias. We've been working a lot more with people who know how to propagate the history through these other means. And that's been really interesting. It's funny because most of us on the advisory board, were like, if you want a book written, we can help. I, <laughs> what else? And, and so this is where we've had to really find other people with different expertise who can help us because I'm pretty useless when it comes to that. But yeah, so the website gives all sorts of information. We do have virtual exhibits. And I've really, really enjoyed working with people who know what they're doing in that space. And I've learned a lot. That website is what? Yeah. So the website for the National Women's History Museum is www.womenshistory.org. Great. And we'll put a link to that museum on our show notes, along with your books and all the other things that we've talked about that have great websites as well. Wow. So much work that you've done that you're currently doing. What's in store for you next? What are you working on? I've pivoted from writing to actually really trying to move the needle at the Center for Quantum Networks. And so I've been doing some research, certainly that we hope to publish through the National Science Foundation about not not just gender in STEM, but really underrepresentation in STEM. But my other little pet project that unfortunately has been a little bit sidelined, but it will be done, is I am going to be writing about the superpowers of Gen X women. Oh, okay. I love that. Yes. That's awesome. What are some of the superpowers of Gen X women? I know. Is it a coincidence that I'm a Gen X woman that I'm writing about? The yeah. Really what it is, generationally speaking, particularly Gen X women, have been in this really interesting space. Like their mothers in the 70s, that was the first generation of women who started to work outside the home. Many of us were latchkey children or whatever. Being sort of sandwiched between these two very big generations where everyone thinks they, they get all the attention, but actually there's ways that Gen X women 
have had to be really good at negotiating a lot of things that I don't think other people notice. Mm. We definitely see it in the workplace. We also see it, and, and I don't know that this is a great thing, in our ability or our willingness to try to take on everything and be really good in all spheres of activity. To be honest, I think that this is also why we're very burnt out and disgruntled, but there's a way in which we've told ourselves, okay, we've benefited from being this generation that was told that we can go and do whatever we want to do in the work world, but we still demand perfection from ourselves in our domestic lives as well. Right. It's funny because our mothers, the first generation that really started to work outside the home, like in, in droves, they didn't tell themselves they can do it all. And so that's why we had the latchkey programs. Mm-hmm. That's why we had this understanding that somebody had to take care of our children when we were working and we didn't feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. This generation of professional women think that they're supposed to compete with people who don't have those pressures at home, but then also be ceaselessly available on both fronts in ways that make no sense, but we we give ourselves the pressure of doing it anyway. And so I really wanted to write about that phenomenon, but I also don't want to overstate it. There's many women that are technically Gen X for whom this does not apply. So I actually was surveying women that were rural women versus urban women, women of all colors and socioeconomics, the dynamic changes, but for the most part, for sort of college-educated, urban, professional women, we try to achieve this perfection in all spheres of activity. And unfortunately, when we miss the mark, it gets noticed, but no one's realized how much the bar has been raised. (laughs) Yeah, that's a phenomenon I'm, I'm really interested in. That sounds like a book that definitely needs to be out there. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. I think the reason why I got a little bit held back was that I wanted a broader sample set than just a lot of women that were like me. Mm -hmm. And so until I get a little bit more of a a wider cross section, I don't want to start to to write. Mm -hmm. I don't want to perpetuate the same women getting talked about. I think it sounds fascinating. We talked about what you're working on next. Where can people best stay in touch with you and what you're up to? I still have a website that I use as Julie Desjardins, the historian. And that is just juliedesjardinshistorian.com. And I, I can always be reached that way. But now I'm also at the University of Arizona at CQN. And so if anyone has any questions about gender in STEM or underrepresentation in STEM, I can be reached at Julie Desjardins, one word, at arizona.edu. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I've just so enjoyed this conversation about women in the professional workforce from the 20th century up to today. It's just been fascinating. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being interested. Oh, we're very interested. (laughs) We're very interested. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) We really appreciate your time and your expertise. It really brings to light the aspects of this book too this month. Mm, Definitely. Thank you, Julie. Bye-bye. Thank you. You know, Lenny, this was so fascinating because we reached out to Julie 
because she's a historian and a writer. But I was so interested to hear about the work that she's currently doing in the University of Arizona and her work with the Center for Quantum Networks, working with women and men and figuring out how to, even in the 21st century, remove barriers for women in STEM fields. Yeah, I'm glad that she's a voice out there working on this, Nancy, because as a gender, we're still so underrepresented in those STEM fields, even after all this time. So kudos for her for carrying that banner and doing that work and hopefully moving us forward. Mm -hmm. We'll stop by the front porch next time because our November book is The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak. Yeah, it's going to be a really great book. One of my friends recommended that we read this book, so I'm really looking forward to it. So it's getting to be the time of year where we set our reading list for the next calendar year. So listeners, if you have any suggestions for books that we should consider for 2024, definitely let us know. You can go to our website and send us a message at frontporchbookclub.com slash contact. Ooh, I would like to see what our listeners would like us to review. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting, Nance. Okay, our episodes come out twice a month, the first and third Wednesdays of every month. See you next time, Linny. See you next time, Nance. <laughs> oh. <laughs>